All right, church, it is part four of four of this series on Ruth called Unbreakable. And I just want to start by giving a shout out to next week's brand new series called Evidence. The, uh, the logic, I think, of that is going to be made clear here in just a, a few minutes. But this series, Evidence, is all about the, uh, the overt, the explicit, the miracles of Jesus. And, and about how the miracles of Jesus point us towards something beyond just this world, beyond even the, the ministry at that time. But in fact, those miracles point us to the very center of the heart of God. But part four of the series, Unbreakable, continues on in chapter four of Ruth. Uh, before we get there, I want to say that, um, that about a year ago now, I, uh, I, I threw out this, this image, this idea, you know, just a word picture. And it was like one of those things that had like this sticky quality to it. And I know that it was kind of the sticky quality to it because then I found myself in a couple of situations where I was set back, you know, disappointed with a couple of things. And like some of you preached my sermon back to me. So like now yeah, I know how it feels. So I'm like, that's what that's like. I'm not sure about this. But it like had this lasting quality to it. And I thought, hey, let's come back to that. It's going to be new to many of you, I know. So just kind of sit tight. And then we're going to build on that this morning. So the image is this, that the Christian life is not a straight shot, 131 toward up north somewhere. The Christian life is a twisting, turning state road. It's an M22 that winds itself all the way around the lakeshore. It's an M22 that eventually sometimes you're going to look at your car's compass and it'll say that you're headed south even though you're trying to get up north. It's a winding, twisting, turning M22 with hairpin turns, with very few gas stations and bears along the way. That is the Christian life. It'll get to God eventually, eventually, eventually. The book of Ruth is that in a nutshell. The book of Ruth, if you're just joining us for the series, is one where, where Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, leaves Bethlehem, the house of, be- of bread, because of a famine. That's ironic. And she heads out to Moab, Israel's sworn enemy. And, and there she, she experiences three funerals. Her husband, her two sons. She comes back after at least a decade. And she says, listen, I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Don't call me sweet Naomi. Call me bitter. That's a setback, a hairpin turn. And then throughout the story, we see some highs and lows, some signposts along M22 that at least show us something good is happening, right? Maybe something okay is going to happen. And then it's another turn. And then it's another setback. Last week, we heard this incredibly awkward story that I do not want to preach again. So you can like listen to it online because we're not going to visit that again for at least 10 more years. No, I'm just kidding. But it'd be, listen to it. Uh, but it's this terrible plan of Naomi to try to get Ruth to like get Boaz to put a ring on it. And it's like, that's an awful idea. That's never going to, how can you, but the, but the character of Boaz, the character of Ruth, this unbreakable life of obedience, it passes all of this. Uh, the test becomes the testimony. And we can see good things are on the horizon. That story actually doesn't end in catastrophic failure. It actually ends with a marriage proposal. And so we think, yes, finally, the promised ending. And just when we think that M22 is winding north and we can see the finish line, there's a bear in the road. 
The bear's name is another kinsman redeemer, another relative who's closer than Boaz and is threatening to undo the entire thing. Let's go to Ruth chapter four and pick it up in verse one. The words you can find, follow along in the Bible underneath the chair in front of you, also on the words screen behind me. And Ruth chapter four starts off this way. It says, meanwhile, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned, the closer guy, came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And so he went over and he sat down. And there's like so many coincidences in, in this story, right? There's like, oh, I can't believe it just happened to be this way and happened to be this way. It's not a coincidence. It's just like the way that he's saying that God is like behind the screens orchestrating all of this. Don't forget, in case you weren't here, uh, what a kinsman redeemer is. Uh, this is God's system, God's plan of caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, caring for people who couldn't care for themselves. If a, if a man died and left a wife and kids and no one to provide for them, God set up this structure so that a kinsman redeemer, a close relative, would swoop in and would promise and have the right and the privilege to care for them and to provide for them, to make sure that the widows, the orphans, had enough food to eat, had a life to live. Now, Boaz, remember, he wants to be that guy for like whatever reason. And this is like miraculous in and of itself, but like he wants to be the kinsman redeemer that swoops in and cares for bitter Naomi and Ruth, the poor, broken foreigner. He wants to be that guy, except for there's like another person standing in the way, right? So some, some twisting, turning, hairpin, and, and like he's closer. And so Boaz knows he has the legal right, even the legal uh, responsibility to be the guy who's going to swoop in and take the woman that he wants to be with. So that's guardian redeemer. All of this takes place, um, by the way, down by the town gate. And we'll kind of get to that in just a second. Boaz shouts out, uh, guys passing, he happened, right? Coincidence to be passing by. And he goes, hey, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Names in the Bible mean a lot. In the book of Ruth, in particular, names are huge. Boaz, strong, tough, mighty. Uh, uh, Naomi, bitter, sweet. Elimelech, my goddess king. The names mean so much. And so now we have this close relative who's just called, hey, my friend. Now, they knew what his name was. He's a closer relative than Boaz. It's like a brother to, to a brother-in-law of uh, Naomi. It's a closer relative. She knows what his name is, but everybody in the story just calls him like, hey, friendo, uh, partner, right? Like finger guns. I don't know. I, probably not that. But, but he's just like, hey, guy. You know, if he's Christians, he's like uh, brother or sister, like side hug or something like that. Um, he knows what his name is. The reason, the, the significance that he is never named in the story suggests like this quiet kind of, of condemnation or judgment in what's about to happen. So we're going to see this kind of contrast play out. And the author of Ruth doesn't want us to get distracted by the bad actions of the friendo, you know, partner uh, guy in the story. He wants the camera lens to be squarely focused on the action of Boaz. Okay, first thing. Second thing, this happens, this takes place at the town gate, which I think is, is like really significant in the story of Ruth because nothing significant in the story of Ruth happens in the synagogue, in the temple, in worship, in church, in Sunday school, in small group. Nothing in the story of Ruth takes place in those settings. Everything significant in the story of Ruth takes place in exactly the opposite 
like, like in Moab of all places, like uh, Israel's sworn enemy territory. Everything significant takes place on like out in the field somewhere where Boaz spots Ruth or, or on the threshing floor or here at the town gate. The town gate was, there's really no cultural equivalent to it today, but it's like a, a, maybe the title office, I guess, like the place where business deals were closed and also negotiated. And so they had people around that could like ratify or notarize uh, the, the deal, whatever it was that took place. And so Boaz is hanging out here because this was a legal transaction of the way. And we kind of get this long like explanation about how the negotiation took place. Why? Two reasons. Number one, I think that God wants to show us that what you do tomorrow is every bit as spiritual as what you did today, this morning. I think that God wants you to know that that if you go to work tomorrow and close a deal, it's as spiritual as standing in church, arms raised, shouting out praises to God. If you go tomorrow and, and, and you wake up and you pack up kids' lunches, or if there's a snow day again, maybe not, but, but like, and you've got bigger like, things to worry about. Uh, it's every bit as spiritual as your small group Bible study. There's not like a division here. So, so God is like explaining that the business transactions of a 3,000-year-old Middle Eastern subculture because he wants us to see how Christians ought to conduct themselves Monday to Saturday, not just on Sunday morning. And the the second thing that we can start to see is pulling out is that God is like intertwined, is that God is invested, is that God is in the details all throughout. Not only is it spiritual, but it's also godly. When we kicked off this series in Ruth chapter one, the hidden hand of God, and I I said, I want to come back to that image and say, remember God has two hands. God works with two hands. He works with his, his visible, miraculous hand that he rearranges the laws of nature to work on our behalf. He heals, clean scans, checks showing up unexpectedly in the mailbox. Like, like he does things like that. But he also has an invisible hand whereby he abides by the laws of nature that he created. So God miraculously feeds people in the desert, his people, in the book of Exodus, manna. He rains down miraculous bread from heaven. But in the book of Ruth, it's no less God's action when the invisible hand of God called his providence, his providence causes a rain cloud to come and water the crops. They grow up, they harvest them, they turn it into grain, they turn it into bread, they, they bake the bread, they eat the bread, they have something to eat. This is all, these are both the hand of God. Side note to all of this, that's why we're doing our series next on evidence, the miracles of Jesus, because it's just to inform us, God has two hands. Do not forget that. If you're a little like me, you get very excited when you get to see Every so often, the visible hand of God's miraculous power. And you get very frustrated when all he gives you is the invisible hand of his providential grace. And it's frustrated because we can't really see what he's up to. And it's not as quick, and it's not as rapid, and sometimes it's not as dramatic 
And it makes us feel like giving in and giving up. It's a hairpin turn, a setback, not a gas station in sight and a bear in the road and I'm done with it. That's the story of Ruth. I want us to give a, I want us to have an image around this. So the other day I was at a thrift store, right? And uh, I'm rummaging around and I, uh, and I come across this. I know you can't see it and that's fine, but does anybody know what this is? Just shout it out. Cross stitch, awesome. And uh, it's a cross stitch of a cross. Very clever, very meta. Um, okay, so I found this one and it's got actually like a name written around it. Uh, so it says like Mary Van Vandersma or something like that, 1984. So it's 35 35 years old. So Mary put a lot of work into this thing. Um, and, uh, and the thing about cross-stitching is that you look at it, uh, this circle is called the frame. You look at it above the frame and you kind of see it says, uh, that my house may be filled, uh, Luke 14, 23. And it's like, uh, unfortunately, in Mary's enthusiasm to finish the pattern, she didn't put a space in between may and be. So instead of saying that my house may be filled. It says that my house may be filled. <laughs> Classic Mary. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and here's the point. On the back, below the frame, instead of saying like grandchildren are a blessing, it looks like grandkids threw up on it. Like it doesn't make any sense. It's just gibberish. I brought a picture here uh, behind me. You kind of see just this like lower part of it. Actually, when I brought it in this morning, somebody looked at the bottom part of the slide and they're like, oh, cool. Like, is that some like Hebrew word that like, you're teaching us? I'm like, yeah, for sure. I still remember that from seminary. No, it's, it's gibberish like all throughout. It makes no sense. It's just like stitch, stitch, stitch. And, and we live, church, this is important. We live below the frame. And this is all we see below the frame, just stitch, stitch, stitch. And it makes no sense to us. Very important for us as people of faith to recognize that God lives above the frame. God knows the pattern that he's weaving. God is the artist that's pulling something in line. God is the one who is at work. We see stitch, 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 setback, hairpin, bear, God sees a life that is forming, your test becoming your testimony. God sees you went there, you met her, you moved here. God sees like this consistent pattern that he is at work on consistently throughout your entire life. God sees not only that, that your life is filled, the Christian life with hairpin turns and setbacks, he also sees that you're going to get north eventually. He also sees, and this is critically important, he sees that some of the most important work in your life is going to take place after your life. Let me build on that. This is what happens next in the story. Don't forget, there's a bear in the road named Frendo. Verse two, Boaz, he took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so because he needs a notary. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, he said, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land belong, that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that if you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you redeem it, do so. But if you'll not, tell me so I will know for, for no one has the right to do it except you, but I am next in line. Some of you know what that means to be like next in line. You're, you're like the, the, second, uh, the, the second 
person with claim to a property, you know, maybe you put a deal in and then somebody else is like, hey, you know what, I'll match that deal and, and add a little. Or maybe I'll do that deal, but, but I'll cover closing costs. Or, or like, I'll show up with the same deal, but it's all cash. And you're like, who are you? Like, what in the world? Uh, you're right, it's, you're, next, you're second in line. And so you don't have much bargaining power except to like bring something else to the table. This is Boaz. He sees this opportunity, but he's second in line, his second claim to it. And so he knows he's got to up his game. He's got to do something. Boaz is a clever person. And so he's got a plan throughout all of this. We have to trust him. It's like stitch, 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 but, but he's working on something. He's doing something in the story. Uh, in, in this case, um, Naomi, she comes back and her, her husband who passed away, Elimelech, had some land. Now, land in the time of judges is, is like invaluable. Uh, like it's so precious. It couldn't almost be bought or sold. It had to be inherited. Like, like that's how valuable this thing is or invaluable right? Because you couldn't buy it. And so now Boaz is saying to this guy, hey, partner, um, you actually have this, this opportunity to acquire for yourself some land. What an opportunity this lies ahead of you. And the reason for that is because Naomi, husband Elimelech, who passed, had two sons, Mayan and Kilian, who also passed away. So Naomi had a legal claim for some land, but because she's a woman living way back then and not here today where we had like the 19th Amendment and women can like own land and things like that, because she lived way back then, she had a claim on the land, but she couldn't own the land. She needed a fella a friendo, a partner, to marry her or, or uh, join her family so that that person could, could own it. So what I'm just, I, I want you to see is like partner here, he, he gets this invaluable piece of property for like a transaction fee, right? Or like the cost of shipping or something like that. Like it's, it's pennies on the dollar. So Boaz presents, hey, you have this opportunity ahead of you. It's a, it's a Limelex farm. Do you want to do something with that? obviously I want to do something. We continue on. He goes, I will redeem it, he said. Verse 5, then Boaz said, over here, could you imagine, by the way, could you imagine if you were Naomi washing this thing? I mean, you worked and you hustled and you did some really shady things so, so much to get Boaz to marry your daughter-in-law, Ruth. And, and then all of a sudden, like, Boaz is pitching this idea to, like, Frendo over here and saying, like, hey, you got this free thing. I will do so. I will buy that. Naomi is no longer bitter. Naomi is fuming, right? She's like, Boaz, bad plan, bad stitch, pull it out. Boaz knows what he's doing. I will redeem it. Verse five. And then Boaz said, oh, there's just a little fine print on the deal. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. He's like, oh, okay. In addition to the land that you're going to get, Elimelech's farm, um, you also get the Moabite. You know Moab, our sworn enemy? You know Moab, the people that do like the human sacrifice? You know Moab, those aren't the girls you even want to date, let alone marry. You get Ruth in the deal. Sweet, right? Not so sure about this. Oh, but there's more. You also get bitter old Naomi, who is now fuming. She's yours too. Now, I, I think he probably would have done it. Like, it still makes sense. Like, oh, okay. Except for he was also aware of another law that said when this whole thing, guardian redeemership, like, kicks in, like, the heir from Ruth, he didn't know about her. He knew about Naomi. 
But Ruth, who would have to marry her, if she has a boy, he is the, automatically becomes the firstborn and he automatically gets the lion's share of the inheritance from the family so that everything that like Frendo owned wouldn't go to his kids, but it would, the lion's share would go to Ruth's kids, the Moabite, and would just like leave his family line and go to hers. She, she, he's going like, this turned into a deal of a lifetime to a deal of my death. I want nothing to do with it at all. And so what does he say? <clears throat> you know, after a careful consideration, <laughs> verse 6, at this, the guardian redeemer said, I prayed on it and it's all yours. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. He says, you redeem it, Boaz, yourself, for I cannot do it. You redeem it, Boaz, because I can't. Now, I just think that the author of Ruth here can't help but like try to get the readers back then and also us today to try to start to compare these two guys together. To say, just do a little compare and trust. When you take his life, when you take Frendo's life and you kind of line it up to Boaz, I think we start to learn a couple of things, right? Because, because Frendo, he looks at this situation as an investment opportunity, unfortunately, with a person attached to it. And he wished the deal was cleaner than that. Boaz looks at this opportunity as a father, as a husband, and unfortunately, this land thing is really messing everything up. And so he has to do this kind of negotiation, this tricky thing to, to try to get the, the person, even though like, there's land. And you get the sense that he might as well just not take it. And I just think like it's this cool way to like for you to go into your Monday, right? Because you could go into your Monday like Frendo or like Boaz. You could go into your Monday like, like Frendo here where, 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 you know, he really loves money and things, and he uses people to get them. But you kind of get the sense that Boaz loves people, and he actually uses his money and his things in order to better love people. The, the one guy, because everybody is an investment, it is a thing to him, he looks at Ruth as just a problem person. And sometimes we have, don't we, a habit of looking at people, like problem people, and say, just, I wish it was cleaner than that. I wish it was just the land. I know what to do with land. People are all kinds of messed up, and people are backwards, and I don't know what to do with people. People are problem. But Boaz looks, and he goes, no, the land is the problem. That confuses everything. The, the, the people, you know, Ruth isn't a problem. Ruth is a princess. And I know she's broke and poor and a Moabite and really has a complicated background as a foreigner. And I know her mom isn't just bitter but fuming, but, you know, she's a princess too. And I'm going to love her. And I'm going to love them. And I'm going to use all the things at my disposal to better love and care for them. I just, does that remind you of anyone? Like maybe the significance of this story, of, of why it has lasted for 3,000 plus years, isn't because it's a cute little love story, but because it's the grand love story between God and his people, the church. Because I think a lot of people would look at us gathered here, and if they were to really dig into the stuff behind the walls that we put up, 
they would start to see that we're nothing more but a bunch of addicts, a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of liars, a bunch of half-hearted people. Some offense should be taken. That's us. And the vast majority of the world, if they're honest, would look at us and say, it's a group, it's a problem group of people. Leave it alone. Don't touch it. But the heart of God is one that looks at his people, the church, and sees nothing less than a princess, not a problem. And say, no, 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 the church, she's worth it. I love her. She's all kinds of broken. But I'm going to love her to death and back anyway. I love her. And that, and it's a grand, a grand love story. That's a cool story, right? Like that I'll preach. (laughs) I love it. It's a really, really good story. What happens next just takes it up a notch. What happens? It's like a whole nother gears on gears to this thing as it just ramps up. Listen to this. Listen to this. We get the story continues in verse 13. After the wedding bells, after all this takes place. So Boaz, verse 13, took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. There's only two times that the Lord explicitly did anything, uh, visible, miraculous hand of God in the story of Ruth. To get the other one, go home and read your Bible. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the woman said to Naomi, praise to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. And it's like intentionally ambiguous. Who's, Who's he? May he become famous. Is it the baby? Is it the guardian redeemer? Is it the Lord? Yes. <laughs> May he become famous throughout Israel. 15. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Drops Mike. <laughs> no, notice in the story, I love this then. Like Ruth, Ruth and Boaz probably did the majority of the heavy lifting in the childbirth experience, mostly Ruth. Uh, and like she's off in the corner and like just like tired and like she just delivered a baby. Who gets to name the baby? Mom? No. She's tired. She's sleeping. Dad? He's probably out with his buddies somewhere, not around, typical. Um, Grandma? No, it's not grandma either. It's grandma's friends. Grandma's friends named the boy. (laughs) What would you be named if your grandma got a chance, grandma's friends got a chance to name you? It's just the community, right, gathered around here and saying, Obed, it's a good name. It's a strong name. Names are important. Obed means the servant of God. And you know, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Yes, King David, the line of Jesus, the greatest king that Israel had ever had. Oh man, what, a, what an amazing conclusion. What a happy ending. It's like one problem, this whole thing. Ruth never got to read the book of Ruth. Ruth never got to meet her great-grandchild named David. Ruth never got to see David grow up and become the greatest king in ancient Israel's history. Ruth lived and died in the time of Judges that starts off the book of Ruth. In those days, Israel had no king. 
The only thing that Ruth ever saw was stitch, stitch, stitch. And she had no idea that the greatest, the most important work of her life happened long after her life was over. You imagine her going out to Target to register for the wedding, <laughs> scanning with a little pricey gun, you know, picking out towels with Boaz. You think these are still going to be soft in 10 years? <laughs> That's about as far down the line as I can think of right now. She had no idea that what was at stake wasn't just a couple of stitches here and there. It was nothing short of a legacy. She had no idea what God would do through her. Here's a takeaway in the book of Ruth. You have no idea what God will do through you. You think that the Christian life, I think that the Christian life is a, at best a, a twisting, turning, winding M22 that will eventually get me to up north. The greatest part about that story isn't the destination that I arrive to. It's what God does with all of these stitches along the way. But the thing about it is that while you and I, we live under the frame and God lives above the frame, here's the thing. He never promised to show us the above the frame view. That's called faith. We never get to see it. Sometimes we get glimmers of it, but we take it and we trust and we trust him. Maybe we've seen him move in the past and we, and we expect him to move in the future. We're headed north and eventually we can start to see the signposts. We're getting there. God is good. God is great. He lives above the frame and he's stitching something beautiful together for our good and the good of those who love him. He's good. He's great. He lives above the frame. You know, the story of Ruth continues, and I didn't read it uh, more, but there's a genealogy that it ends on, just the full genealogy. And it goes all the way to the last line, Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Everybody who read Ruth from that day on knew how important, how significant that was. David, finally, King David. It's a, it's a good family line, a good family tree. Maybe too good. I don't know. Because you know what ended up happening is, is the same thing that ends up happening to a lot of us today. It's they started looking at this thing saying, that's a good family line. That's a good tree. In fact, that's more than, that's a good genealogy. That's a, that's a good, strong resume. You know, it's some of them, some of the people, they don't have such good family trees. They don't have such good genealogies, good resumes. And so what ended up happening along the way is that religious people started getting into this thing and started saying, well, yeah, that's, that's why God loves some people because some people are really good and some people are really strong and some people make really good and wise decisions and God loves those people and, and saves those people. Some people are bad. Some people mess up. Some people lie. Some people sin. God doesn't love those people. God doesn't save those people. And that church is the exact definition of religion. And as the people of God started shifting in that direction, one guy sat down a tax collector named Matthew and he goes, now I'm going to write to this thing. 
Because that's not the God that I know, and that's not the Christ that I follow. So you got to know the genealogy, the family history of Jesus. And he starts spelling it all out in Matthew chapter 1. It's the most important thing you have to know. You have to know how God sees us. Good people, bad people. No, no, no. He starts spelling out the names. Then he goes, there was one of them, Tamar. You'll have to Google that one because I'm not going to share the details in church. And there's another one. There was, there was a Rahab. Uh, she was a Canaanite madam. And as the, as the Israelites like attacked Jericho, the walls came tumbling down. But, but Rahab, no, Rahab, she joined the Israelites. Even on that sign, like she had the vision. She had the eyes to see God moving among these people, how their hearts melted. No, no, I want to worship that God. I want to worship the God that I heard about. And so that Rahab, Stitch, goes along with the Israelites, Stitch. Rahab sits down and she gets married to a good little Jewish kid, Stitch. She gets married, she grows old, she has a baby, Stitch. You know what the name of that baby was? Rahab sits down with that little baby and decides, hey, you know what? I'm going to name that little boy Boaz. Stitch. And do you think that that had anything to do with that baby, Boaz, growing up? And seeing a broken, poor, foreigner girl gleaning in his field and his heart breaking for her stitch because in her she saw his family, his mom, stitch. And all the while, God was pulling together a masterpiece and saying, my family isn't good people that I love and bad people that I don't. My family is broken, lying, half-hearted hypocrites. And I call her princess. And anyone can come in if you're honest. So this series, church, I want to invite you into it. I want to invite you to be a part of the masterpiece that God is pulling together where every stitch counts Nothing is wasted. If you're ready to be honest and turn your life over to him, there's a card in the back of the seat back in front of you. There's a box on there that says, I made Jesus my savior today. Another one that says, I renewed my relationship with Jesus today. On your way out, check that box. Put down some contact info. Drop it in the box between the doors. We want to celebrate with you. If you want to turn over more of your heart today, make him your savior, be a part of this incredible masterpiece that God is weaving together where every stitch counts. Go to the table in the back during this last song, the prayer team. We want to pray for you. And most of all, best of all, if you're ready to show the world that you've died and raised with Jesus Christ, his son, through the sacrament of baptism, go to encounterchurch.org right now during prayer, during the last song, encounterchurch.org slash baptism. Start the conversation we want to celebrate with you because, church, every stitch counts. Nothing is wasted. Your legacy is on the line. The most important thing, the most important work in your life happens after your life. Everybody stand up. Let's pray together. Let's pray that God who even now, even now is weaving those stitches together and is at work. Gracious God, what a world. What a creation you're up to where every stitch counts. 
God, even the ones where, where, where we fall down, even the ones where we mess up, even the ones that we regret, even the ones, God, that in the middle of the night when nobody is around and we're begging with you and we're wrestling with you to take it away, to clip it out, to make it as if it never happened, God, you say, no, 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 that's the one, that's the cornerstone of the whole thing. That's what I'm gonna build my church on. That's what I'm gonna build your testimony on. God, thank you for not wasting a stitch, not wasting a life. God, thank you for making it all matter. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.